the Dragonlance Nexus is proud to present the Dragonlance Canticle. And welcome back to another exciting episode of the Dragonlance Canticle, your podcast about Dragonlance. That's right, it's in the name Dragonlance Canticle. We're not here for canticles, that's the other podcast John does on his weekends. I'm your host tonight, Chuck Martinell, and I will be uh, filling in for our regular host, Krampus, uh, who is currently on assignment in Nordmar. Um, Doing what? I don't know yet, but he had a Halloween pail and was wearing a pair of slippers. He's chasing dinosaurs, so it's bad news for slippers. Joining me tonight, I have a couple of, of individuals, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Hello, my name is John Ryan, uh, Nexus contributor, um, play Aravan uh, Moon Whisper on the Dragons on the River of Time stream that you can catch us on Twitch and YouTube and Facebook, uh, if you're so inclined. Uh, check us out on there and give us comments, give us compliments, give us complaints, let us know what you think. And hello, my name is Megan. I am the newbie to the podcast. I am the host of D&D Book Club, uh, a podcast all about the Dungeons and Dragons novels of the 80s and 90s. So we've done Dragonlance, and now we're working our way through Ravenloft. And I am super excited to be here. Um, so yeah, you can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pretty much anywhere that you can find podcasts, and it's D A N D D Book Club, not D N D Book Club, which I regret, but now I'm stuck with. <laughs> Wait a minute, D A D is that Dad? D A N D D Book ah. Club. D and D. Perfect, because I was slow in writing that one down. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's like Dad Book Club, really? This no, that's a different. Good. That's a different one. Different podcast. Let's say, uh, that, so that's that's yeah. my that's my podcast about Tom Clancy novels. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Megan, for joining us. We appreciate you taking some time out of your your day to uh, spend with uh, John and I as we discuss on this episode a Dragonlance novel called Dragons of Winter's Night. It is one of the lesser known novels uh, of of Dragonlance. A lot of people haven't read it yet, so Yeah, it's a, it's a really obscure one. <laughs> yeah. It's this just came out long ago. People don't know about it. Yeah, so I'm going to do our regular uh, spoiler alert for those of you who have not read Dragons of Winter's Night, uh, which is the second in the trilogy of the Chronicles trilogy. Uh, you may not want to skip this episode until you have had a chance to fully read it if you don't want it spoiled. We will discuss things in this episode which will be spoilers. Um, for those of you who did not pick up on the first two times I said it, as as I tell my children at home, if I say it three times, hopefully you've picked <laughs> it up by now, we will spoil this book for you if you haven't read it. And there are things to be spoiled. I have also covered this book on my podcast, so if you want to hear just me talking about it for 45 minutes, um, I highly recommend it. It's full of spoilers, too, though. Yeah, yeah. if you don't like me and Chuck, go check out Megan's show. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, Me- Megan's following is probably more than three, which is our normal listener, you know, 
viewership. Nope. Well, you- I'll tell you what. I'll give you guys a shout out on my podcast, and then you're gonna get like twenty thousand listeners in the first five minutes, probably. There you go. Or maybe like five. <laughs> you're gonna say twenty thousand in the first five minutes, and then after that five <laughs> minutes, they're all like, "This is terrible. Why? <laughs> why do we listen to this Regalance Canticle? I'm here for the realms." <laughs> No, this is a this is a quality podcast. I'll make sure to to give you guys plenty of love on my show. Well, thank you, Megan. We do appreciate it. We, we we've got a fan base up in uh, New England. Kai and uh, and her friends listen to us every episode. So, shout well, out that's to- funny. I'm I'm from New England. I grew right. up in Connecticut. I live in California now, but I grew up in Connecticut. Okay, yeah, I think it's been couple of years I, I met kai and her family at gary con uh, a few years ago and uh, her and her mom were awesome um huge fans so um i was slightly inebriated at the time we were at the lobby <laughs> park, um so i don't remember exactly maybe massachusetts maybe boston i don't know <laughs> well hello kai and kai's mom thanks for listening and now we've lost them John doesn't know which New England state they were from. Right. He didn't know if it was Massachusetts or Boston. They're they're doing all (laughs) all the podcast recordings right now. Big big big, you know, fire by the USS Constitution. (laughs) All right. So this month of July, this will be dropping in August. So last month in July, we have put out a book from the Dragonlance Nexus. This book has, is at zero cost. We are not making any money off from this book. We are not getting any type of funds because the Dragonlance setting is for the fans, and this was by the fans. This book is called Tasselhoff's Pouches of Everything. And in this book, it's the 5e rule set the Dragonlance Nexus team came up with, and we have spent the better part of... I don't know, John, what's the first rules article you wrote on 5e? Uh, pretty much right after 5e came out is when I wrote up a bunch of the magic items um, that are featured in uh, Tasselhoff's Pouches of Everything. Um, after that, I started doing monsters because I was running my campaign in Dragonlance. So I started working on versions of Draconians uh, right off the bat. Um, so, ma- yeah, Draconians and magic items uh, were the first things that that I worked on. Yeah, and I started working on it myself about, uh, it was Gary Khan. Was that 20? I think it was 2019. It was the Gary Khan before I did it on, it was before the virtual Gary Khan. Right. So 20, 2019, I started play testing, um, some, some of my own rules and things. And then eventually we realized, like, we're all working on these things. Why don't we just come together and make a little book? And there it is. And by little, Uh, 94 pages. It's little. And I did no work on this book, but I think this book is fantastic. (laughs) I think this is, if you're a Dragonlance fan, and this is what I'm going to say on my podcast and I review it. I'm going to say, if you're a Dragonlance fan and you have any interest in running a Dragonlance game or participating in a Dragonlance game, you need to get this right away, because this is what... This is the campaign setting we deserve. Well, thank you. Um, 
I'll share that with the rest of the, the, the team. Um, uh, Ed and Tim um, were instrumental. John, you were instrumental in making sure this project all stayed on task. We got these uh, this this all done. Um, I want to give a big shout out for those who, over the years of the Lexicon, um, we were able to use some of their work and, and those contributions and are able to um, really highlight the best fan work we had in Dragonlance, and we have lots of it. So um, the art of the book, um, once again, we had some big people step up, let us, let us use art, and um, very appreciative of all that. The art is fantastic. I especially love the cover art. I feel that the the new pieces of artwork in, in this PDF are better than most of the stuff that was in the 3.5 Dragonlance campaign setting. Um, the Draconians, by and far, the cover art is amazing, but the picture of the Draconians is... I I have no words. It it blew my mind when I saw it. Yeah, I mean, I was really impressed with a lot of the stuff that... that um, the art, you know, that uh, Elena... And I do for I do apologize if I mispronounced that name. Um, she did. I mean, those draconians were just awesome, and I love the cover. I love Tass pulling the pouch off from uh, Lord South, and <laughs> it just perfectly captures the spirit of it. I think. Yeah, yeah. As, it's as I like to say, Dragonlance Nexus is Tass, and Lord South is Watsy. <laughs> so. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see what happens uh, when it all gets said and done here. But we're we're proud of what we did, and then we hope hope those who want to use it can use it. Like again, it's no cost. You can find it on the Dragonlance Nexus website. Uh, it's a free download, um, and um, we are planning some more works down the road. Uh, the bestiary is, is is that how I say it, John? Bestiary. Uh, I've heard bestiary or bestiary. Uh, I think yeah. it's auto type. I always say bestiary. It sounds more dramatic. Right. I don't bestiary. have Trampus here correcting me, so I don't know how <laughs> to say it right. Um, but we'll have that book coming down. I am currently working on Champions of Kryn from the old computer game back in the uh, 90s, uh, updating that for 5e. Um, a modern abdat- abdatation. Hmm. Those are hard Which words I- tonight. Is that the one you're doing for the Adventures League? Yes. I've been hearing buzz about a Dragonlance Adventures League. So uh, the first one, will John has 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 had a chance to play test uh, 1.0. I think I'm on like 2.2.4. So on on this adventure. And um, yeah, and I was able to take a lot of that feedback, and I still got groups uh, play testing it out right now, and we're hoping to have that drop at the end of September. Uh, at the latest here. Um, first first couple sections are actually into editing right now. Awesome. Uh, you've got a lot of people uh, looking forward to it. So my my um, my Discord that I belong to is abuzz with excitement for it. So well, hopefully you've got, I... you got an audience waiting. No pressure. I, I like <laughs> to say set, set the bar low. That way I could trip over it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I look forward to that. It, it's gonna be a, it's gonna say it'll be a full eight or nine uh, path. Uh, I'm not sure how the outline has nine right now, um, but with playtesting, we'll see if that short, shortens up to eight or not. 
Hopefully it doesn't go to 10. Hmm. Could be a long, long path in my life. But um, I'm having lots of fun with it. It's it's an awesome um, story to tell, and I love that computer game. So, yeah, I was watching a um, a Let's Play video uh, on YouTube recently. I don't remember the name of it, but somebody was playing the was playing the original one, the first one of the series. And it's a bit before my time. I find it a bit hard to follow, but I'm excited for the adventure. It was definitely fun when I when I had a chance to play it. Let's say I, I I grew up playing that game, so I guess I have tons of fond memories. Um, I'm a child of of the '80s into the I was a teen in the '90s, so mm. yep, I was that cool. <laughs> yep, yep, same here. I remember. Um, I vaguely remember the Dragonlance Nintendo game. I actually oh. I remember. I remember the Ravenloft. Uh, do you ever play the Ravenloft um, PlayStation game that had Lord Soth in it? No, I didn't know such a thing existed. <laughs> yeah, it's a fighting game. It's like a it's a one-on-one fighting game. You have like there's two teams. One is Soth's team, and one is Strahd's team. Fight against each other. Like it's pretty bad. Mortal Kombat type fighting game. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. But much worse. <laughs> <laughs> Much I'm less intrigued, fun. though. Well, I'm, I'm, so... <laughs> I'm intrigued. I haven't even heard of this before. Mm-hmm. It's called Iron and Blood Warriors of Ravenloft. So it's obviously it's a Ravenloft themed, but it's got Soth in it as a character. Not a not a playable character, but it's got Soth in it. Well, we know what John's doing after this. It's like Barovia, like right. a Barovia and Sithicus are at war or something, and so Strahd chooses his champions, and Soth chooses his champions, and they fight each other. Okay, so. I'm getting a, I'm getting a Team Soth shirt now. <laughs> and they actually, there's a uh, there's a shout out to the game. I know this is not Dragonlance, but there's a shout out to the game in the new Ravenloft book. Seriously. They have a uh, one of the one of the characters from the PlayStation game is mentioned as a as an NPC in the new Ravenloft book. See, and people think that Watsi are not fans of anything. <laughs> like that's no, that, they're, pay- that, they're paying attention. It's a pretty deep dig right there. It is for sure. Huh. I like that. That's cool. Yeah, I learned, I learned something today. <laughs> right. Uh, check that I'll, off the list. To, to learn us. <laughs> Well, moving on here a little bit with, with some more knowledge being dropped on this. Fizbin's Treasury of Dragons was announced. Um, it was leaked a couple days early. The buzz went through the roof. The speculation went through the, to the moon. We were finally getting the Dragonlance setting we've all been waiting for. But, John, <laughs> what did we actually get? The Draconomicon for 5th edition, um, which I saw... I, I kind of felt it was going to be this because, you know, they, they had the spell that was in the Unearthed Arcana with uh, Fizbin's name on it. So immediately my first thought was, oh, here we go. Here's Dragonlance. Here's Dragonlance. But then they also had other, you know, spells with other wizards' names on it that were not in Dragonlance. Um, and then that same article also had Gem Dragon Dragonborns. So those have historically not been a, a part of Kryn in any shape or fashion. So 
immediately I thought that this is going to tie into a dragon themed book. And um, after my initial thought of seeing Fisman's name on the spell, uh, once I saw everything else, and I was like, yeah, it's probably going to be a dragon book. And it is. And I am super excited for it, regardless of whether it's for Dragonlance or not. Um, because I, I do feel that with Fisbin's name on the cover um, and some artwork of him that may or may not be him, depending on who you talk to, um, there's going to be some Dragonlance tidbits in there, I feel. Um, that's just my hunch. I, I feel they've got to go into Dragonlance a smidge if they're going to name the book after one of their major gods. I feel like this book is intended to be kind of a consolation prize to Dragonlance fans. <laughs> um, like, you know, maybe you guys are probably never going to get that full campaign setting. Um, but I think that there's a lot of things from what I've, what I've learned about this book. It sounds like there's a lot of things in it that's going to be really, really helpful to, uh, to GMs and players who want to like run a Dragonlance type game because the the presence of dragons is so you know of course it's dungeons and dragons it's got the dragons is in the name but the dragonlance much more so than any other setting is really about dragons you know the dragons are characters they're involved in the world um they participate in the world and it seems to me like this is going to make it a lot easier for uh for people who want to have like a dragon heavy campaign or dragon heavy game like Dragonlance was sort of intended to be. Yeah, and I'm I'm running Price of Courage right now, which is the adaptation of the third edition book that Cam Banks wrote, um, which ends in a fight with Frost, the last remaining dragon overlord. So, mm-hmm. since there are going to be great worm dragon stats in this book, uh, which are even more powerful than ancient dragons, um, I'm anticipating using that stat block and fiddling with it to make it work with the uh, the special abilities that Frost has on top of that. Um, but that's a very dragon-centric uh, story, especially once you get towards the end. So I'm mm-hmm. definitely forward to using that book uh, in my game. I feel like maybe the maybe a lot of what's presented in the book is intended to connect to Kryn in a certain way when they talk about, have you heard them talk about how there's a, like a prime material origin story that involves Tiamat and Bahamut, like creating the world together? Yeah. And then they destroyed it somehow. (laughs) Yeah. I'm kind of like, Hmm, maybe that, maybe that world was Kryn and maybe, or maybe they're trying to, and they also talk about how these, um, these elder dragons can kind of exist in different, different worlds and communicate with one another and they're like different a different form mm-hmm. exists in a different verse so in a different multiverse so you've got you know you can have bahamut in Faerun, and you've got uh fizban on ancelon and they're essentially the same being or tiamat and Takesis. so i feel like it's they're they're trying to bring dragonlance into the canon even if we don't get a full crin setting from watsi but it's okay because we got Tass's pouches of everything. So I think that this Fizban's Treasure of the Dragons is like a supplement to Tass's pouches of everything. I like that. I like that approach. Well, 
I, I do hope maybe someday we do get a 5e Dragonlance setting from, from Wizards of the Coast just to open up the uh, DMs Guild. Yes. That's true. That's an excellent point. Um, as, as much as I do love Tasselhoff's pushes of everything, I mean, it's not going to be accepted by all fans uh, because some folks, if it's not got the Watsy stamp on it, um, they're just not going to use it, which is fine. I'll just cry myself to sleep at night like usual. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, if you combine if you combine Tass's pouches of everything with Fizzban's Treasury of Dragons with, you know, the older modules and do a little bit of homebrewing to tie it all together, you've got everything you need to make your own Dragonlance campaign setting. That, right. that is true, um, because you've got everything you need to create, you know, a nightmare or a council or the high Clarice tower. <laughs> oh, I see where you're going with this. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like a cold winter's night around here. <laughs> if only there was a dragon. In the middle of July. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we did just have Christmas in July at our campground last weekend, so it, it fits. It fits. Uh, oh, Dragon's Winter's Night. I I don't know what I was thinking there. That's what we're moving on to <laughs> next. Um, Dragon's Winter Night is a the discussion here as we continue down the pipe of looking at Chronicles through the lenses of folks who have uh, read it a few times now and have experienced life and, and seeing how well it kind of holds up. And if we still like it or not. I mean, there's one member of this podcast who said he hasn't read this book in years, Krampus. And, um, <laughs> you know, that's that's sad. Um, I think we should start a, a movement called Trampus Read the Books Again. Um, hash, is, that, is that like a hashtag? I'm too old for this stuff. Is that hashtag now? Uh, <laughs> hashtag. Is this a hashtag? Hashtag save Trampus. There we go. And we'll get we'll get uh, Ed working on a TikTok video for this. <laughs> That'll bring in the kids. We'll get a TikTok and a Snapchat and a MySpace. What? You mean there's a profile <laughs> where you can put your favorite music on there and it'll play when you visit your page? That's insanity. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, so for those of you who are not familiar with Dragons of Winter Night, which there are a few folks... This is the second Dragonlance novel in the Chronicles trilogy, um, which, along with the Legends trilogy, is the first six books of the Dragonlance world. Um, you can have different entry points into this world. There's nobody who's going to arrest you, drag you out of your house. Um, if you came in through Dark Queen, I do apologize for that one. Yeah, but, but overall, this is the setup for the Heroes of the Lance. Um, the novel... Um, it's part of the beginning of, of, of the, the entire series, as I said. And we're dealing with those characters that have become beloved. Um, I don't or know how you... What's that, John? Or despised. Or despised over time. Have, are, are, are treasures in the community, whether you love them or not. <laughs> this novel takes place after Dragons of Autumn Twilight, which left the companions outside the dwarven city of Thorbarden after a happy wedding in which there was lots of dancing and singing. And there were some dwarves there. They were doing dishes, and there was this hobbit. <laughs> a 
Uh oh, I think I'm on the wrong podcast. I think I got my notes confused here. <laughs> is, no, is this Bilbo, I, uh, is Bilbo in this scene? One that ends with Lorana making out with Elliston. Keep that in mind. Oh yeah. Uh, all right, all I'm right. Not... We, we 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 cannot discuss the movie. It's on it's on the banned list. I'm currently playing through the. I'm currently playing through the, uh, the original first edition modules, um, updated for five E that uh, Vodcard has um, has remastered. He's my dungeon yep. master. I promised I give him a shout out. Awesome. Um, awesome. So we've been playing through his adventures, and we're actually right at this moment in our playthrough. We've just we've liberated the. Um, the prisoners from Pax Tharkis, and we're trying to find the entrance to Thorbarden so we can stick them somewhere. And we're trying to play in the wedding. That you just you just set that off in my head talking about the wedding because I'm playing Goldmoon in our in our adventure. So I'm like, what? Are, when are we going to plan our wedding with all these running away from draconians? <laughs> Very quickly. Well, luckily in the the book, all, all this kind of happens off screen. This thing going into Thorbarden until the Lost Chronicle series. So we we don't pick up the companions until they are ready to go to Tarsus. Mm-hmm. Tarsus the beautiful. <laughs> and we're gonna jump into here a little bit with some discussion here. So um, this novel takes place uh, over a significant portion of the War of the Lands. And what are you guys' overall thoughts on this book? Um, personally, I really really enjoyed this book um mostly because of the sylvanesty nightmare like that whole part um was so interesting and fascinating to me uh as as a teenager when i read that it was just something you know like who thinks of this who who could do this in their in their mind who who could think of something like that um and it foreshadowed you know obviously bracelin turning to the black robes. Um, so when that happened, eventually uh, spoilers, when that happens, eventually, um, you know, you're not too surprised because you're like, Oh, you guys, we saw this. Um, but the whole scene in Sylvanesti, I thought was fantastic. Uh, and that's what really got me uh, in pretty much invested in the series you know i I read autumn twilight and and it was good and i I caught on and and latched on to a few characters that i really liked but not until i got to sylvanesti was my mind just like totally like wow this is incredible this is something off the charts uh for me this is my favorite book of the trilogy it's one of my favorite dragonlance books uh of the entire series i think that this book kind of, for me, this book captures everything that Dragonlance is about because it's got like the, it's got the that sort of war feeling that I think one of the things that I think sets Dragonlance apart um, from the other settings is that that feeling of a world kind of at war, and mm-hmm. I think that this this novel captures that feeling more so than than the mm-hmm. others. Um, uh, Dragons of Autumn Twilight is very much kind of a dungeon crawler um, type of novel, and the latter half of Dragons of Spring Dawning is kind of the same way. But I think that when when you talk about the War of the Lance, you're really talking about Dragons of Winter Night. 
because it's got the war scenes. It's got the destruction of Tarsus, and then it's got the um, the Battle of the High Clarice Tower, the Council of Whitestone. It's very. It's this is the book where the war happens, except with with the exception of Lorana's um, the Vingard campaign that Lorana launches in Dragons of Spring Dawning. This is really this is the War of the Lance. My problem with this book, and and you know I I do overall like the book, but this is my least favorite of the six books that came out of the Holy Six, as some people call it, is because we are missing chunks of story, and I just get tired of it. Uh, we don't have any of the Thabarden story. We don't really get any of the story of Ice Wall. We just get some bits and pieces. And, and, and to me, that just takes away from this overall tale of, of growth, especially for the character of Sturm. I think losing his Ice Wall story just greatly diminished my feelings toward him in this entire book. Um, I didn't really care about him. I mean, he had this knighthood thing. I didn't really care about him until I read Lost Chronicles mm-hmm. and, got, and got that chunk of the story that should have been in this book. And I know this book was already long, but I just, you know, a lot of people love that moment on High Claire's Tower when, when, when Stern bites the big one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just feel personally like I didn't have enough character growth to get him there. I, I met him in the first book of Dragons of Autumn Twilight. He was kind of a night wannabe. Um, and throughout this book, he's still kind of just that night wannabe and, uh, until he finally gets to the Whitestone Council. But like I said, for me, this book is missing pieces. Um, overall, a, a good book, but it could have been so much better if we would have been given these extra stories. Hey, I have to agree. I, I do think um, that the Dragons of the High Lord Skies fills in, like, that book is so good. The whole ice wall thing with Fielthos. Fielthos is one of my favorite uh, bad guys, uh, thanks to that book. Um, he is so interesting. His backstory, his his reasoning, um, and his involvement in the war, uh, and his his attitude. That that book was awesome, and it was, uh, you know, you get a little poem about it in in this book. Um, but it doesn't capture, you know, obviously anywhere as near as much as the, the actual story does that we don't get for, you know, 20, 20 years uh, later. But, um, yeah, if you if you have a chance to read both, um, it really helps flesh out story as well, um, especially going through Tarsus. Um, that, that part is is awesome. I feel like Sturm is very fleshed out in this novel. I mean, sure, there's parts lacking from the from Dwarven Depths and High Lord Skies, the parts that got filled in later that we didn't really get to see. But um, he, when I read Autumn Twilight, I was like, ah, oh, this is a boring character. I never really liked the sort of lawful good paladin type character. So I found him kind of boring in the first one. But once we get, he becomes much more of a human figure in the second book. Like when we see him with Alhana and we see him during the destruction of Tarsus. And then we get to see the way uh, Derek Crownguard treats him. Um, I feel like he really shines in this book. And then so I think when he, Sturm's death, I think is the kind of high point of the book because, well, I do think the Sylvanesti dream is probably 
if there's two highlights in this book, it's the Sylvanesti dream and it's the the Sturm's death at the High Claris Tower. And I think I think that it's really earned by the how much time we spend with Sturm and how deep we get to go into his character. Yeah, and like like you said in the first book, he, he's just the good guy knight um, in shining armor that is stereotypical of of fiction fantasy novels. And it's he's not, kind of a jerk too. He's kind of a jerk to Raceland. Yeah, and it's not until this book that you realize that he's been lying to everybody the whole time, and you're like, oh shoot, that immediately made him more interesting. When yeah, it's it's a great character dilemma. You know, a character who's supposed to be unable to lie has been lying to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in the future, when you find out, uh, you know, about Steel Brightblade, he had a son with Kitiara. Like, what? What? This dude was walled all over the place. It, it makes him yeah. than just the good guy that swings a sword and defends everybody. I feel the same way about Lorana. Lorana really comes into her own in this novel. She's just kind of like little, little um, lovesick girl in the first one, but by the end of this, she's—I mean, her and her and Sturm kind of run away with this novel, in my opinion. Yeah, we'll get to—I think we'll get to that when we talk about about uh, about the parties separating a bit later. But mm-hmm. I feel like they are their story is really what holds this book together. And there's so a dynamic how, between the two of them that I really love, too. So how believable is parts of the story? Um, knowing what we know about Dragonlance and Kran, how believable is it that nobody knows that Tarsus is no longer by the sea after 350 years? Um, they know where Tarsus is coming out of the Barden. We know the Barden, those dwarves are pretty silent, but... Um, how do we? How does nobody, you know, not know that this place no longer is by an ocean anymore? Uh, so I, I always wondered that myself. Um, but I, I think, um, I think it was Dragons of the High Lord Skies that kind of opened my eyes to that, and that it's it's so secluded. Like they don't want anybody down there. Like they rejected help. Um, so nobody has a reason to go there. So maybe the only people that might know about it is people to the south, you know, along that route, maybe the Plains of Dust, um, you know, the inhabitants of the Plains of Dust might know. But who goes to the Plains of Dust to talk to those people? Nobody. So, you know, I, I find it that, yeah, it's weird that nobody knows but they they also made a case for it um, that it's you know secluded and nobody goes there because there's nothing not much left of it so there's no reason to go there you know to find out um, but that that I, wasn't growing up I it never bothered me because the the way I see sort of the geography of Ancelon is all the characters are really from Abyssinia except for um, Sturm who comes from farther north. But you can't get to Tarsus without going through the mountains. And to go through the mountains, you have to go through Thorbarden. And nobody has been through Thorbarden in hundreds of years. So right. the, that's sort of a gray area on the map to these characters. I mean, the hill dwarves live in Abyssinia, So do the, um, the Qualinesti. That's where Salas is. 
So I think that they've just never really gone too far afield and they wouldn't necessarily know what's on the map. And if you think about, if you imagine Kryn to be this kind of dark ages world and that's, I sort of, when I, when I think of Kryn as compared to um, real history, I think of it sort of like the, the dark ages and they didn't know what was, you know, they didn't know what was on the blank spots of the map back in those days. They thought all kinds of strange things were there that weren't there. Exactly. If you if you went on a ship and went south, you know that Tarsus is supposed to be on the coast, and you keep going south and you get all the way to Icewall and you didn't see Tarsus, you probably just assumed that it was destroyed. There wasn't a lot of exploration, I don't think, in, in the days following the Cataclysm for the next couple hundred. That I don't... At least it wasn't explained that way. Um, there's never been any stories about, you know, people need to go out and map the world and, and see what everything looks like these days. There just wasn't a lot of that, I don't feel. Uh, so, you know, the fact that it was landlocked and secluded miles away from shore uh, from where it was supposed to be, um, I, I think kind of kept its mystery uh, intact because nobody bothered to go check on them. Two points there. Uh, first off, this is Dragonlance. We don't sail anywhere. So, <laughs> um, they sailed second, to, in this book. We can't Dragon, sail somewhere without a without a without a sea. Oh no! I should say, Dragonlance. We don't sail anywhere outside of ten miles of coastline. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> we never go unless anywhere you, unless else. Unless you've got a gnome ship. Secondly. <laughs> Why would the Red Dragon Army give two flubs about Tarsus? They've uh, have been there. They've scouted it out. You've got the. You've got. This is not a just random attack. I mean, armies don't move across a continent just randomly to to attack this location. Um, why is the Red Dragon Army even interested in Tarsus? And you can't. The, to me, the argument isn't the refugees because the refugees are still in Thabardin. Well, they're looking for... It, Kitiara is looking for Tanis yeah. and the others. She's trying to find the, the platinum discs. And she's looking for Tanis and her brothers. She's sort of borrowing dragons from, from Ariakas, I think. Yeah, because she was in trouble at that point. So she had to use some of the Red of Dragon Army to go to uh, Tarsus, um, if I'm remembering correctly from Dragons of the High Lords guys. Um, she had to prove herself, but she went on there. She went down there with her own mission to find Tannis because she heard about the assassins that killed Verminard, and they matched Tannis and her brothers. So she went looking for mm-hmm. them, and the attack on Tarsus was basically just a. Uh, a means, uh, an excuse for her to go there um, for her own needs. Uh, the, the attack on Tarsus just was a, you know, not a, not a coincidence, but a uh, consequence of her looking for her brothers. Um, she's kind of, she's trying to stamp out the new religion, too. She knows she's, she's got Elistan on her list, too. Right. Okay, so so knowing that now, knowing that there's a reason to be there, the Red Dragon Army wasn't, you know, just all of a sudden just randomly showing up. Mm-hmm. Um, as as a lot of readers have said over the years, um, 
what transpires next is probably one of the biggest, I think, risk in literary you can probably do. Splitting, splitting, the, party. splitting the party into two <laughs> separate groups to tell two separate stories in the same book that don't have a lot of connecting pieces, but at the same time have a lot of connecting pieces. Well, it worked for Tolkien. <laughs> That's true. And if we've learned nothing over the years um, is that the Dragonlance Chronicles, you know, I, they, they don't obviously mimic uh, Lord of the Rings, but they definitely take some inspiration from it. So um, I, I feel like this was maybe a nod to that. Um, but also, in their own words, Tracy and Margaret have said they had too many people on scene at once. They had to split them up to kind of give each character some more breathing room and things to do. But yeah, you got to remember, and this is the mid eighties, any of the, even TSR novels coming out of the time, we don't split characters. We, we might have a character go off to a little side quest for a little bit, but then come back together before the end of three chapters. So this is a huge risk in the mid eighties. Yeah. Well, I think it, it works and it doesn't. And I think it works because they're going for this epic feel that I don't think um, the Forgotten Realms novels really had. And in order to have that epic feel, you need to really explore the world. And we kind of got to see that through these different through these different groups. We've got you know one group going south and then west. And we've got another group going east and then north. Um, so we really get to see the breadth of the continent on which this story is taking place by splitting the party. Um, but the downside is that the the Tannis the Tannis Gold Moon Raceland party doesn't really have a whole lot to do. And and that's the truth of it right there is that that party is just kind of well, we're gonna be on some griffins for a while. <laughs> they get out of Sylvanesti and they head north and they have their traveling magic show until they get to Flotsam. And that's it. They're just basically kind of, kind of traveling along. Meanwhile, you've got the other party going to Icewall and then going to, uh, to uh, Urgoth and meeting up with the elves there, and then going to Council of Whitestone and then Palanthus. And that point, I guess they don't go to Palanthus in this novel, but they go to the High Claris Tower and they get to have more fun. Although they also suffer so a lot more. So you clearly see who the B team is versus the A team. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's almost inverted in a funny way. That's why I was talking about how Lorana and Sturm really shine in this novel because they're the they're. I mean, I would say I would make the argument that any team that has Tannis and Raceland on it is the A team, but the B team is the one that gets to do everything, everything memorable in this book. Um, so it's it's it was a good time to be on the B team, I think. For sure. So moving that, a little... That, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that that, while, while it kind of leaves uh, the A-team out in the cold, no pun intended, it really gives a chance for the other characters to shine. Even even Flint and Tasselhoff and Gilthanis, they all get their own little story moments. Yeah. And that probably wouldn't happen if they were with Tannis and Raceland and them. 
Yeah, because this this also has the part where they go, you know, this is the book where they go into the Silver Dragon Mountain um, and discover Fizbin and Human's Tomb, and that was another part that I thought was awesome. Um, I thought that the Dragon Mountain was a super cool uh, quote-unquote building, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, so much so that when my when my gaming group was heading to Urgoth and Price of Courage, that's one of the adventure locations they can go to is the Vale of the the Dragon there, and they skipped right over that part. And I'm like, oh, what are you people doing? <laughs> Why would you do that? You just got to go I and pay homage. Why would you skip this? I'm trying to lead you by the nose, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> they ain't being led. <sighs> Well, let's let's jump to the A team here a little bit with Lorex Nightmare. Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about what what they kind of move forward to, and, and when they get to Sylvanesti, um, they arrive in a land that is not what they at all expect. Um, Lorak, the king of the elves, has tried to use a dragon orb, and the dragon orb has turned against him, has tricked him, um, through the help of one. Very, very devious green dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, into it, into changing the land from being a safe place into a land of nightmares. And in this part of the book, we also have the companions in the nightmare itself. All of them. Which, as a reader, is a little bit confusing. Because all of a sudden you have all of them back together again. Which... For teenage Chuck, that was like, yeah. I love this scene. I think this scene is exciting. I think it's scary. Um, and I think especially if you're reading it for the first time, it it really you don't know what you don't understand what's going on. And yeah. when the characters start to die, you have no idea that they're that they're gonna survive. You know, it feels like they're really dying when it's happening. Yeah, it's very descriptive. The uh, their deaths, like they don't just gloss over it. Um, I mean, they they do make you know a couple of them. Like Tika goes off screen, and all of a sudden they look back and she's laying on the ground bleeding out. You know, um, they don't go like too graphic into all everything, but there's some really good descriptions uh, and and details about the the combats that these uh, heroes are facing um, in their minds. Um, and even when the the B team in Icewall uh, wakes up, they all had the same nightmare, and you're like, oh, that's what happened. But, you know, until that point, I was so confused. I didn't know what was going on. Because, uh, you know, you said that some people weren't supposed to be there, but there they are, and they're dying, and but they're on the other side well, of the world. And, well, uh, it's, what the hell? And you think of it this way. You've got Raceland carrying Caramon. Yeah, like mm-hmm. who's bleeding out. You've got Tannis and Sturm plowing towards a tower. Sturm is getting beat upon for trying to get there, saying they had to get there before Raceland. Tannis stumbles and say, is saved by Katari. Yeah. And yes. Well, we, <laughs> we, we don't argue. Uh, actually, Margaret and I had this discussion. All pronunciations are correct. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Um, Riverin. Killed by undead tribesmen who blame him for the destruction of Kyushu. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you've got Tiki and, Tika and Flint fighting Draconians. 
Uh, Tika gets distracted by wrestling and kills Flint. Um, and then Tass. Tass, had, Tass is the saddest. Yeah. Uh, Goldmoon stumbles onto Riverwind's body and finds herself unable to heal him. The gods have left her. Tass mm-hmm. finds Tika at the base of, of the tower and picks a simple lock to get them inside, but he fumbles. Uh, he rolls a one. Sets yeah. off a trap <laughs> and is killed. <laughs> or actually, he's poisoned. Uh, the, Tika dies. As John said, just kind of just dies. Caramon uh, and Rachel step over their, their bodies, which Caramon um, now is, is too weak. You know, he collapses. Rachel, of course, leaves him. Mm, foreshadowing like big time there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then you got Tim, Kit, and Sturm also find the dead bodies and forge their way further into the tower. They encounter and order Lorana, who's shocked to meet Kit. The Cian Bloodbane, the huge green dragon, and Raceland. Sturm uh, goes after Raceland, um, but decides that his destiny is for bigger and better things and charges a dragon. Uh, he's lured in by the glamorous sounds of glory, but really that's mm-hmm. just the sound of draconians charging. Uh, the dragon, you know, makes short work of him. Surprisingly foreshadowing again. Yep. <laughs> and then they start in on Lorana. <laughs> Uh, Tana starts to rescue her, but then Kit's in trouble, and he panics, and has, he's like, who do I love? This is a love triangle. Do I love Kit? Do I love Lorana? Do I love Kit? Do I love Lorana? <laughs> and I just see him just doing these little laps, running around. I don't remember if this is part where he cried or not. He's frozen by indecision. He cried so much. Well, he passes out eventually. I mean, he's doing these circles. I mean, he just gets exhausted and just falls over. I mean... I think he falls down and says, no, like Darth Vader. <laughs> And then he says, Padma! And then everybody goes, what, what is going on? Uh, then you got Raceland and Bloodbane going toe-to-toe. Um, they end up becoming well, friends later. Yeah, and... and well, I don't know if they're quite friends, but, you know. And I say, and Tannis is one that figures this all that figures it out that something's gone horribly wrong and he wakes up on the mm-hmm. tower floor and, and nearby is Raceland. Mm-hmm. And it's like what the heck did I just read? Yeah. It it blew my mind, dude. It blew my mind. I was I was 15 when I read this ish and in 1990-91 somewhere around there and I just I didn't know what to think. I was like that was you know, it was just so incredible to me. So I was incredible. like 11. I was like right in that sweet spot of credulity where it was like my own best friends being murdered in front of my eyes. Yeah. And and, and then you have the A-team as they come back together. Mm-hmm. And, and you've got people weeping and crying and you realize Sturm, Flit, Kit, Lorana, none of them have been there. Mm-hmm. So they're not really dead. And it's just like, what the? Did someone forget yeah. to edit this part of the book? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's seriously what I thought at first. Like, you know, I, I wasn't, being a dream wasn't even in my mind as a possibility. I was, I was. I mean, just, they never go to sleep. Very, exactly. Right, right. Yeah, they didn't. They they just flew on Griffin back, and all of a sudden, uh, this they're happened. just there and asleep and awake at the same time, and it's 
and they don't i think that they made a good decision and not quite explaining you know where the boundary between being awake and being asleep is and they mm-hmm. never quite explain like why all this foreshadowing is happening during this dream either and i think i think that makes it more effective overall because yeah. there's a certain level of mystery to the Syl- the sylvanesti dream is kind of uh, a mystery within the dragonlance series in the sense that there's not quite a explanation that will explain everything yeah i agree Man, that's the thing is you get all this stuff, all this manif- all, all these things. You've got Tannis, Trapana, and Kit are defined by Tannis's indecision. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're figments of his imagination, not really there. Sturm is once again defined by his quest and glory. And Flint, he's afraid of growing old. Um you know he doesn't want he doesn't want to basically be deaths of many many mm-hmm. people. Goldman Goldmoon fear of losing her own faith and being responsible for the gods turning away, as if one person could cause the gods to turn away in Kryn. <laughs> um, Goldmoon, um, she's at least she's no king priest. I'll say that. Uh, Tass, he can't handle letting people down. Um, he he's he's. I mean that's the big thing. He wants he wants to he's a people pleaser. Mm-hmm. Tika with her inexperience, you know, she's afraid she's gonna hurt the rest of the party and Karaman, that one's pretty easy. He's afraid Raceland will not need him any longer and what the heck will he do with his life? Wow, that's a very deep analysis. I dig it. Yeah. Yeah. Every, every once in a while I pull something out. <laughs> now I'm spent. That's, that's it, guys. Right. You guys are on your own now. But good job. Yep, I'm out. It's you and Megan. Get, we gotta <laughs> carry it. All, All right. right, we'll leave you to get hacked to pieces by undead, and we'll press on. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought the nightmare. Um, I, I would hate to. I, I don't know how this would run in a game. You know, if if somebody is playing in a game, um, Megan, I'd love to hear how this works uh, for your guys's game. Because well, I'll it, let you know when we get there, yeah. It would seem very hard as a DM to keep all this kind of stuff uh, in mind. Um, well, I actually think that this setting would be fantastic for um, for anybody looking to do like a homebrew, like a, uh, maybe a mini campaign. You know, if you, if you were to set it a couple years after the War of the Lance, you know, there's that, there's that kind of in-between period after the War of the Lance while they're still trying to purge all the remnants yeah. of the dream from Sylvanesti. I think yeah. that would be an excellent backdrop for an adventure. Yes, I agree. Like people having to go into the dream or um you know getting getting trapped there. Maybe maybe they're a party that's hired by Portheos to to clear out some part of the of the forest and they end up getting trapped in their own nightmares. I think that'd be a really great way to do like a Dragonlance meets horror setting horror adventure. It'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, that, that, Sylvanesti just being torn apart into nightmare lands. I mean, that's just like some serious foreshadowing for the next like several trilogies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's like my kids. I get something fixed, put back together. One of them ultimately knocks it back off the counter, and it's like <laughs> really. 
Well, um, it definitely has implications for the rest of the, the series going forward. There's like echoes of it for many, many books to come. And while this all this nightmare is going on, we, we have the B team now who went down to um, I, the ice wall. They've done their little thing. We had a little poem about there was three, now there's one, night left alive. <laughs> pretty, pretty sure the song and dance routine was not part of that, but <laughs> it should have been. Um, but we pick up with them as they're heading up to um, the Whitestone Council. Sturm standing charges for something you, you're not 100% sure what he did wrong again because Derek Crown Guard just has it out for him. Oh, I can All explain right. this for you if you want. Oh, go ahead. Okay. So when the party is being pursued by the Qualanesti elves after stealing the dragon orb back from the Qualanesti, uh, Derek Crown Guard orders Sturm to stop and fight the Qualanesti, and Sturm refuses, and so Derek accuses him of cowardice. And Sturm makes the argument that technically the Knights of Salamnia are allied with the Qualanesti elves, so they can't be considered enemies. And that's Sturm's defense, and that's how he gets acquitted. Right. But everybody is Derek Crown Guard's enemy. That's true. Unfortunately. And, I, and, and he is my enemy because I hate him. <laughs> you know, that's one of the few characters I think that universally nobody likes. I have yet to find <laughs> a Derek Crown Guard fan club. I don't think there's anything to like about him, even in the, even in the prequels or the, um, the meeting sextet. He's a jerk. Yeah, the little Sturm. He's like a bully. Bit... Probably picked on Sturm when they were little kids. That's just it. I mean, this guy just hates life. Yeah, he's like the worst. He's like the worst of the um, the Knights of Salamnia. Like he, he's everything that's wrong with the Knights of Salamnia and why they're not functioning properly in this point in time. Yeah, and you you get some some good background to his story in uh, High Lord Skies. Um, it talks about him and Aaron Longbow. And um, the other guy, I think it was Ryan Downer. Yes, yes. Um, how they've been friends for so long, and just and and Derek has just become more bitter and bitter and bitter over the years. Um, you know, and it's it's, it's kind of sad. Uh, but you know, it's for, for whatever reason, um, the the knighthood always falls into you know power-hungry, corrupt um, knights that don't deserve the title that uh, that we feel they should. I, I think a lot of people view the Knights of Salamia as, you know, like a Jedi Knight. They should be good all the time and do all these good things, and it's just not what you see in the books usually, um, except for your, your heroes that bring the knighthood back to glory, your Sturm and your Huma. Um, but yeah, it's He's got an interesting story. I prefer the Knights of Naraka. I prefer the Knights of Naraka, personally. I I did at first when they were the Knights of Tachesis. I, I really liked their um, their honor uh, and, and all that, the, the evil honor. Uh, but mm-hmm. eventually when they just became, you know, murdering thugs that worked as basically mercenaries, they kind of lost a lot of their appeal to me. 
So in my games, I still run them as, as an honorable organization. It's mm, a good idea. I did the. Uh, I attempted to run um, Horde of the Dragon Queen, uh, featuring the Cult of the Dragon as a prelude to the to the Knights of the Skull. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about that before. Yeah, that was a fun idea because I figured they got to come from somewhere. Right. Um. So we we have the companions now, uh, the B team, as they as they have approached the Whitestone Council. That's the next kind of big scene that we're going to discuss. Uh, yes, there is the whole Dragon Mountain, but I, I feel like that's a scene that, as a reader, if you haven't read the book before, you should experience that on your own and make your own judgment call if that is 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 that human human's tomb or not. Mm-hmm. That's there's a lot of uh. A lot of folks, we can do our own discussion on Silver Dragon Mountain some other <laughs> time because that's a full episode right there. Um, but you have the B team now arriving at the Whitestone Council. And the Whitestone Council, you've got five voting members, which is the Knights of Salamnia, Mount Nevermind. What the? Really? The gnomes? <laughs> the Neater the, the Dwarves? The Empire of Urgoth? Sandcrest? Really? Sandcrist? Are, are you serious? That's the other half of the Knights of Salamnia. That's two votes. <laughs> then you got the elves who are allied counselors, and they're all lumped mm-hmm. together. Then you got the Barden, and you have the Kinder. Really? The Kinder? Not, you got gnomes on the, the, the pot, proper council, but you didn't at least throw a Kinder on there? This is like the Council of Elrond. You got all the free peoples of Kryn. The the yeah. knights have a soft spot for gnomes. They're uh, they they like the gnomes. Yeah, well, they share true. they sh- they share the island with them. Of course, they have they, the knights gave themselves two votes on this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then invited their buddy gnomes. That's, yeah, that's that's how they win. <laughs> that's well, we've got controlling interests. Weird how this works, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, when you, when you're the one that puts the council together, I guess you can make the rules however you want. They're like the just, security council on the UN. I just laugh at over time. I'm like, really, as I, as I read this growing up until now, and I'm like, huh, this this is really a weird group of people you put as a, <laughs> the proper council members, and like the elves, you're just kind of like, oh, you're you're like the junior members, guys. Right. Yeah, that's not <laughs> fair. Poor elves. Can't say anything. Oh, um, so during the council, we have a lot of stuff going on during this time. We have Sturm and his trial going on. We've got Lorana showing up with dragon lances. You've got during this whole section of the book, you just got tons of stuff going on with the B team. You've got Tasseloff and Fizbin doing their little thing, breaking a dragon orb. You know, just some <laughs> little, little stuff like that going on. What do you guys want to jump into? What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about Tass breaking the dragon orb, because I love that scene. All right, set it up for I us. Just... <laughs> okay, so the the members of the Council of Whitestone are... Uh, so the, the Knights of Salamnia are in possession. Well, the, the gnomes are in possession of the dragon orb, but they're sort of acting on behalf of the Knights of Salamnia. And the... Qualinesti elves insist that they deserve to have the dragon orb since it was stolen from them. 
quote unquote stolen from them, even though they really stole it from Sturm and Lorana and them. And basically, they're basically everybody is fighting about who gets to keep the dragon lance, and it seems or to keep the dragon orb, and it seems as if the everybody's going to turn on each other. And this is kind of the last. This is the um, the last hope of the people trying to defend Ancelon against the dragon armies. Like if they can't come together now, they're never going to be able to unite against the dragon armies. And Tasselhoff, after some foreshadowing from Fizban kind of sees what's going to happen. He's the only one with the, with the presence of mind to see what's, what's about to happen. And so he reasons that if they're fighting over the dragon orb, the way to stop the fighting is to get rid of the dragon orb. So he hops up on the table, does, a, does some fancy footwork through everybody's hands, trying to grab him, takes the dragon orb and throws it up against the white stone and it shatters into a million pieces and then Nosh the gnome gets to study those pieces to complete his life quest. <laughs> Ta-da! <clears throat> I don't know. It's just a super. It's just a really like. It it's. It's Tass's early hero moment. I would say. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. I when, when this happened, I was like, "What did he just do? No, 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 no." <laughs> I was just shocked that Dragonor broke that easy. I'm like, this is a magical device. I mean, I've been playing D and D, and I'm like, is this supposed to just kind of like roll off the table and like shatter into a million pieces type situation with this magical artifact? Well, he threw it pretty hard, I think. Well, I understand, but I mean, you would think <laughs> you think you think there was some protective spell somebody would have cast along the way, but apparently not. I have this. I have this image because you know how they talk about the dragon orbs having these this sense of self preservation. I can just imagine that the spirit or whatever inside the dragon orb, as it's flying through the air, feeling like it's flying in slow motion, knowing there's nothing you can do to save itself. Right then, it gets the Darth Vader no moment. The dragon inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And they did all that work to get it, and then they just broke it. Yeah, yeah, that's what. But it, there was nothing else to do. It's, it wasn't. And Tasselhoff did ultimately. Tasselhoff did the right thing. Because well, whoever got the dragon orb, it, it wouldn't have made a difference if somebody had gotten the dragon orb. One or the other, it wouldn't have made a difference. All that would have accomplished is that they would have all been at war with each other instead of at the uh, at war with the dragon armies. Yeah, because you would think the Whitestone Council proper would have brought in the uh, Wizards of High Sorcery. No, they don't like wizards. I know. Yeah. I mean, useful people again. You're fighting a giant evil organization, and you're scrambling for allies, and you want this magical device, this dragon orb, and you're like, we don't need the wizards. Well, they were afraid. <laughs> they, they, they smell like they smell like guano. If, if, <laughs> uh, the knights knew that if the wizards knew they had it, then the wizards would want to keep it. That I know. Uh, they, they can't trust wizards. those wizards. They let, uh, yeah, they let they, evil people like in. The wizards would be like, oh, we're going to have to take that back. Uh, and they didn't want the wizards to even know that it existed. In so this, I think maybe the dragon orb just has sort of a hold on people. Yeah. That only Tasselhoff is really able to resist, much like Frodo in the ring. Right. The dragons also went when Tasselhoff picked it up, and he probably read his intentions. He's like, oh, you little... 
Well, in this part of the book, we also find out more about the knightly orders. We find out we've got the Knights of the Crown, Knights of the Sword, and Knights of the Rose. And we kind of mm-hmm. get, a, get some structure hierarchy with this, too. And we discover that Sturm is su- supposed to be in the Knights of the Rose. He's got, well, he's, he's descended got... from the Knights of the Rose. So we, we get this. And this is one of the biggest discussion points in the books. You, 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 if you're descended from the Knights of the Rose, you're pretty much guaranteed to get back in the Knights of the Rose. You're, you're noble. That's the mm-hmm. noble branch. Where in the event DLA, as we wrote uh, Tassus Pouches, we had a lot, of, a lot of discussions on this and a lot of research and even conversations with uh, past uh, folks who who wrote DLA. Um, Knights of the Crown was what, what was the beginning structure. So in the story. Um, one of the things, Sturm goes to trial and he's denied membership into the Knights of the Rose. Instead, the best that uh, Gunther can do is he points him into the Knights of the Crown, which is in the adventure, Dragonlance adventure thing, is like, well, he couldn't be a Rose Knight. He has to be uh, in the Crown, according to the experience level charts. And that has led <laughs> to a lot of confusion over the years of, of how the, the whole knight structure works. Um, and one of the things that I always find humorous is uh, it's almost like the last dig Gunther does on Derek is once again, Lord Gunther is not part of the Derek Crown Guard fan club. Mm-mm. No. So the last dig he does is he puts he puts Sturm in charge of the Crown Knights. Yeah. yeah. And you see that this is almost like you have three independent commands here. Of of you've got um, Alfred in charge of the Knights of the Sword, and you've got Derek in charge of Knights of the Rose, and you've got Sturm in charge of the lesser knights, the Knights of the Crown, kind of the common people knights. And they all get Alfred is loyal off. to Derek. Yes, well, yeah, well, Alfred Alfred was a sole member of the Derek Crown Guard fan club. <laughs> He's kind of <laughs> like um, I see Alfred as kind of like this. Um, he's sort of a grasping kind of person. He thinks he's going to attach himself to this more powerful person, and he's going to rise up through the ranks by holding right. on to Derek's coattails. So yeah, so he yields Sturm. immediately to whatever Derek says. Yeah, Sturm mm-hmm. wasn't wear his armor, his father's armor. Um, but I, I thought that was that was pretty cool. Like uh, you know that we you're found. You know, here's a black rose of of guilt is what he was given at his trial. He was found guilty and was told that he couldn't call himself a knight, couldn't wear his father's armor. Um, But, you know, here you're in charge of these knights. So um, and, you know, you have a chance to show your courage and and honor. And, um, you know, it, it was kind of. In my mind, it was like a um, kind of like a, you know, and obviously what happens is he dies is a, you know, you will redeem yourself in death. But if you don't die, then you're not fully redeemed because, you know, reasons and and drama. Um, But it, it felt it always kind of felt to me like that. You're going to die. And when you do so, uh, you will be redeemed. Mm-hmm. Humo is a knight of the crown too. Yeah, yeah. 
I just had that discussion with my uh, gaming group on Thursday. I'm running uh, Tyranny of Dragons, um, mm. Dragonland, and they're in, I, I have them in Southern Salantia or Southern Salamnia. They're heading towards Salanthus right now, um, and I'm kind of going over how the knights work and the uh, their history and all that. So yeah, we we just went over that this past week. And I've always felt Sturm's biggest accomplishment was actually leading the Knights of the Crown um, and, and creating that knightly order that we all were hoping to have with the death of... I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Um, to, to lead these, these knights, he, he gives them that sense of honor, that sense of knightly duty, and, and gives these men that, that talent back. Um, mm-hmm. to, to me, that's his biggest contribution in, in his entire life well he shows them what the knights are supposed to be and you know, I, they're not I, supposed I, to be this organization of old farts who just care about you know following the rules and they care about the the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law and and Sturm kind of breaks them of that habit by showing them what they are supposed to be and I wish that we could have got a little bit more with that just a little more build up of how uh, Sturm has changed knighthood uh, more than what I just feel like if we had a little bit more Sturm conversations with Gunther and with with another character in the Knight of the Crown to to convince them that what the what how the way they're going is bad you know it's it's wrong <laughs> and I'm trying to show you a better way I I would like the Sturm just so much better um, like I said to me the Sturm's story was just missing. Bits and pieces. Chunks. Yeah, I can see that. I think that would have that would have helped to develop, you know, to to set up that moment of redemption for Sturm and that moment of redemption for the knighthood. Um, but before we get there, we have to jump back just a little bit and talk about one of the most legendary scenes that <laughs> you, when you read it, you're like, oh, man, this is so good, because you finally get in this story, Dragonlances. Yeah. I mean, you get what the story is named after. I mean, it's Dragonlance, and, and in this book, we finally, we have it at the Whitestone Council, Lorana comes in, and, and this is during the part where they're fighting and arguing, and she th- brings out the Dragonlances, and people are like, <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> That's just some stupid lance. Yeah. What, what are we going to do with those? And, and they go on. This. <laughs> and they get, get completely ignored. I mean, this is yeah. the moment when I'm reading and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're going to figure out the dragon lances. Why is there a book three? <laughs> <laughs> Don't they have the dragon lances? It's, isn't this the uh, way, way to do your HP versus a, a dragon every time? Right. <laughs> Those silly one e rules. Oh. Well, I think uh, that it's the dragon lances are never going to be enough without the good dragons. Oh, yeah. Oh, I agree. It's just it's just that moment is passes like you know you've got the name of the series and and it just completely gets ignored and you're like. Well, doesn't Lorana wound uh, wound Sky with the Dragonlance on top of the Kaikaris Tower? Yeah, but that's you know she does something with it. I was say, but at this at the, at the Whitestone Council, you you think that when that when this weapon's introduced, it's just like it's supposed to be this big game changer, and it doesn't 
have any effect on, on the arguing and the fighting and the three votes way that the knights have. <laughs> I, I, well, uh, it kind but, of breaks but, everything up. I mean, it 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 gets them to start working together again once they see that they've got dragon lances. Yeah. And it shattered the white stone. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and, uh, yeah. You know, Theros just throws it into the white stone. The white stone is a metaphor for, um, for Bro- gridlocked Bro- parliamentary Bro- procedure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, the, the, the white stone is literally the whipping boy. It's just like, throw all your men. <laughs> At me. Uh, throw throw the dragon orb at it, throw the lance at it, throw a fizzban at it. Right. I'm surprised the gnome didn't get flung there. <laughs> Probably was. That's how they packed that's how they built the gnome flingers by flinging gnomes into the white stone. <laughs> so we also get get towards here, we get Lorana's asked to go to the High Claire's Tower. Um I know a lot of folks are highly critical of the scene because what business does she have going there? She's not part of the, the voting members, really. She's just an, an ally. Um, her and Flint and Tass, you know, why why would they be included in this? But Lord Gunther is so impressed by her, he, he includes her. And I, I guess, does this seem plausible to you guys? Uh, I I feel like I don't know um, that maybe they're just needing as many sword arms as they can get um, against the assault coming to the tower. Uh, that, that's how I was always thought about it because it's not like, you know, the knights are like, okay, we're only sending knights here because they've got this motley adventuring party mixed in with, with their knights. So I, I always thought it was just a uh, you can swing a sword, cool, get on the wall type thing. I think it's a bit of deference to the fact that Lorana and friends found the dragon orb and got it there. I think they kind of get a little bit of a blank check in what they want to do. So if they want to go to the High Claris Tower and, and help out, then Gunthar is going to let them go. Plus they're Sturm's buddies, so, you know, <laughs> Gunthar is on Team Sturm. My my hot take is uh, Gunther recognizes Tass and annoys Derek Crownguard a lot. Oh, besides... that that could be <laughs> true too. <laughs> all three of these people, Lorana, Flint, and Tass, all annoy Derek Crownguard. Like what? Yeah, more it could just be doing? could just be a dig at a. It could just be a dig at Derek to make his life harder, drive him insane even faster. If they wouldn't have went, maybe Derek wouldn't have went so crazy at the end, and maybe he would have mm-hmm. been an all right kind of guy if if Lorana, Taz, and Flint hadn't been there. Yeah, we we just figured it out they would have won the, the battle. <laughs> of, I, they would have defeated the Blue Dragon Army if they hadn't been there. Derek, Derek would have learned. The, <laughs> Derek learns the true meaning of friendship. Right, right. When he that's, that's the alternative ending. Her, him from a fall, and uh, they 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 grasp hands and look each other in the eye, and they're like, "Bro." <laughs> and then they Do you think it's to- funny that Derek Crown Guard is not a Knight of the Crown? <laughs> 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 I 
what crown are they guarding exactly? Is there? There's no king of Salamnia. It was at one time. Was there? Hmm. Yeah, I mean the history of Salamnia is is completely crazy. They have kings sometimes. They have knightly rules sometimes. It's like ebbs and flows. They have downright bastards just leading them sometimes in the future. <laughs> hey, hey, that character is one of the best characters ever written in the story. <laughs> um, meanwhile, so while all this stuff is going on, on uh, the Whitestone Council stuff, we also got the A-team back in Flotsam. They've, oh, been, yes. doing, they've been doing their little song and dance routine, wrestling this... <laughs> Doing some magic, raising some money. Caramon shaking his hiney. <laughs> One of those things that's maybe correct. <laughs> um, but we also have Tannis wandering the streets. Mm-hmm. What the blazes is Tannis? This is this guy here. Like he's 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 smart, but yet he's dumb as a brick. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he's wandering around the streets of Flotsam. He gets attacked by a deranged elf in some back alley. All of a sudden, out of the blue, Kit rescues him. And next thing we know, they are in some sort of inn, not coming out for days. Not one of his better moves. No, no, not one of his better moves at all. Um, yeah, it's for for being the leader of the group uh this this part always threw me like you're supposed to be the the guy with the ideas you're supposed to be the guy who's making plans um and you abandon uh your your friends uh to go pal around in uh, kitty Ara's bed for the good part of a week she just has that kind of hold on him. I I guess. I, <laughs> I guess. Because the I prince mean, Prince has a song about that. I'll let the listeners research that. <laughs> I mean she he does lie and, and keeps the rest of the group from getting captured and says he's an officer. Mm-hmm. Under her That's command. Cool. He at least has a little bit of presence of mind there. Yeah, well my problem is how's he how's he gonna pull this bluff off? You know, if she checks any paperwork, he's not going to be listed. Well, he's got the armor. <laughs> That's all you need. <laughs> yeah. Oh, perfect. <laughs> You're wearing a uniform. You must be one of ours. Come I on board. I just imagine him wearing this, like, cheap Dragon Army knockoff that he's, like, it's like a <laughs> cosplay he put together from the costume shop. and uh, Right, you got it at Family Dollar. And Michaels and stuff. <laughs> And it's and it's some of it's two sizes too small. The, the helmet's three sizes too big. Just like a big dragon pinata that he wears on his head as a helmet. But this is all we get from the A team. Yeah, that's pretty much. I mean, they they really don't do much after uh, after Sylvanesti. No, they're like, oh, we're in Flotsam now. Whistle pig. Whistle I wonder pig. if. I wonder if they, I wonder if the party split the way it did because, like, you've got Tannis, Tannis, Goldmoon, and Tannis, Goldmoon, Riverwind, and Raceland are all such important characters in the first book, 
Whereas you've got Lorana, Sturm, Flint, and Tass as kind of these background characters in the first book. And maybe they just wanted to give them a chance to shine in the second book. I don't know. I mean, it's a good point. <clears throat> yeah, they they don't really have uh, a whole lot of function. Um, the, I, the the ship part. Uh, jump forward a few pages when uh, you know they're they're finally escaping on the ship, and when Caraman. And uh, you know, is is begging his brother to take them with him, and Raceland's like, "No, bro, uh, we're done. I'm out." Like yeah. that, that part to me, like I was the hugest Raceland fan uh, in high school, as I'm sure most people were. Uh, <laughs> but that so, part, was like, oh, what a jerk! Oh, this guy! Oh, this guy! <laughs> so, so John did that. Every one of his family members. <laughs> Hey, wait for me. I'm leaving. Yep. Yep. See you later. That's, <laughs> a, that's a good trick. That's a good trick. If you're at like a family function and you know, it's getting really boring, just, you know, hop on your dragon orb and fly away. Yeah. You just pull out an orb out of your pocket and be like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> Uber picks you up and scoots you away. The orb doesn't, the orb has its sense of self-preservation. It doesn't want to be bored to death by this conversation. So going to whisk itself away with you. Well, moving forward a little bit here, we jump back to the High Clarice Tower. We have forces uh, defending it, the knighthood. They're outnumbered by the besieging Blue Dragon Army. Low on supplies. Morale is low. Um, you know, they're drinking fermented horse's milk. Mm. Um, sounds delicious. Sign me up. <laughs> um, Probably better. You know, you've got you got the Knights of the Crown fighting each other because of Sturm. You've got the higher ranks led by Derek and his lackey, Alfred. Uh, Derek has slowly gone to madness because Tass has been assigned as his roommate. <laughs> Tass keeps rearranging his stuff in his room every night, and uh, Derek can't tell what's going on and just starts slowly going insane. You know, supplies are running out. Derek then decides to order a frontal assault. And I'm like, I'm like, you got Palantis behind you. How are you running out of supplies? Don't, don't well, they cut them off. They cut them off. The Palantians aren't supplying them anymore. They made a separate piece with the dragon armies. Yeah, so, well, this tells you how bad the knighthood has fallen here. Because they can't even control mm-hmm. the, the, the crown jewel of the, of the empire. Right, yeah. Um, so, and he got... Uh, you know, Derek and Alfred, his lackey, they carry out this attack, and as with most impromptu, badly planned attacks, it doesn't go their way. Um, Alfred loses his head, Derek dies, <laughs> um, and, you know, and they start taunting the few remaining defenders, and Baracus, who is, a uh, uh, the, the the number two man in in this army gets shot by not Arana. to be con- not to be confused with B A Baracus. No, no, <laughs> not, not at all. Yeah, because this guy does not <laughs> pity a fool. He doesn't pity a single fool. No, but Lorana shoots him in the arm. I love that scene. Uh, and that's the moment that you, I think, you finally realize Lorana's 
a real deal. Yeah, that's a fantastic scene. When all the knights are like, uh, he's unarmed, we can't shoot at him. Narana's like, I can shoot at him. <laughs> yep. Yeah, well, I love that. I love that I part. I, I love Derek dying. Like I love Derek getting killed, and then Lorana shooting Bakaris is just like the icing on the cake. Well, you have the you have the death of the old knighthood of Derek, um, mm-hmm. of the corruption. You have Lorana showing once again. It has that moment of showing like this is what we have to be. We have to arise to be this kind of people to to win. Mm-hmm. Um. We have all these old-fashioned rules that don't work. The knights do. And because uh, Sturm is in trouble right now because he didn't follow Derek's, you know, mad plan. Right. And and you've got all these knights of the crown, like, not sure what they should be doing. Ugh. It's a good day not, not to have Tass as your roommate. <laughs> If you, I, I kind of feel almost like you could say Kitiara made a mistake by attacking the tower when she did. Actually, I think maybe Ariakas even says that to her in the in the third novel that she had them on the ropes and she she could have just starved them out. But yeah, she wanted to press the attack and sort of have that moment of victory to, to be the first one to take the High Claris Tower by force, and she paid for it in the end. Her sort of hubris. Days until starvation. One. Will we attack <laughs> now? Yeah, for real. I mean, <laughs> she didn't have to do much. No, and, and Lorana here starts figuring out the dragon traps at this time too. Mm-hmm. They, and, find and, the, they find the last, the last dragon orb. Yes, of course. And who, who finds it? Tass. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Probably because Derek had, had previously sent him out of his room to, to explore things. <laughs> He's like, get out of here before I kill you. Which is crazy because this entire tower is designed as a dragon ta- trap. Mm-hmm. But, but apparently nobody remembers this because it's been thousands of years since there's been dragons around. Yeah. Yeah. But I, eh, again... There, there's so many stories and so many books. You know, they read 300 volumes to figure out what their rules are supposed to be. I can't believe that nobody read a book that uh, that that's the purpose of the tower, and there might be an orb in the base of it to uh, use utilize. Well, they the knighthood just had just dismissed Huma by now. Yeah, that's true. I think Huma is kind of like a semi legendary, if not entirely legendary. Right, because the only human they could find on the rolls was was a knight of the crown, and how could a hero be a knight of the crown? That's just the common That's people. Not possible. You need to be a snooty, fancy knight of the rose if you want to be a hero, like Derek. Yes, yes. I did find it uh, interesting and cool that Lorana was able to use the orb. Um, you know, it broke Lorak. Um, dom- you know, an orb dominated him. Raceland was able to control one, of course, because he's Raceland. But for Lorana to be able to use it and uh, know how to use it and have the willpower to control uh, the dragons like she did, um, I-, I thought that was pretty. Probably, probably the thing that impressed me the most with Lorana was the fact that she could use 
she was able to take over the dragon orb and use it to effect. Well, do you think Laura couldn't use his dragon arm because it had been he had had his possession quite some time and and it had learned his mind. I mean, he he stole it as an apprentice when the, the cataclysm had hit. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, he stole it um, right after his test, um, and had it for centuries. Um, yes, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I I'm. I'm I'm thinking that this was touched on in your favorite novel, Dalimar the Dark, but I don't remember uh, it exactly. Well, that's where I pulled it from, because I, I remember reading in Dalimar the Dark how he had pulled the, the dragon orb yeah. from the city to, to save him and, and, and had touched it periodically throughout, throughout his entire time, just just caressed it. Yeah. Maybe he was dusting it and just accidentally forgot the rag. I I, I, I don't know where this this dragon arm has been sitting here for centuries untouched, and I don't know. I mean, the the dragon arms are are sentient magical items, artifacts. It might decide Lorana was the right person, it has the right ambitions, and and I'm I'm tired of of not doing anything for centuries. Yeah, it was just it was just bored. Yeah, I'm unleashing, unleashing the abyss out here, folks. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna drive. I'm gonna drive Draconians insane. I'm gonna cause the dragons to come, coming through here, kill a couple of them, and this blue dragon army that on one a few pages prior was on the cusp of victory goes into utter chaos, and, and not only has to leave the High Claris Tower, but gets pushed way back. Yeah, because. You know, you when you lose all these draconians and they're attacking you and they're ex- exploding left and right, turning to stone, acid. Yeah, I think, I think the implication is that Lorana can use it because there's a, a desperation to her situation. She's not, she's not trying to use it and survive. She's willing to, she's willing to to give up her life in order to just attempt to use the dragon orb. And I think the dragon orb maybe responds to that in a little bit, in, in a way. Mm-hmm. That might be. And I guess that's sort of a theme of Dragonlance in general, so it makes sense that that would work. Not that Lorana would know that, but she, know, that sort of will, be, willingness to sacrifice yourself is an important theme in Dragonlance. She was given the script for ahead of time. She had read through the part. <laughs> she was like, oh, I like this part. Uh, yeah, I like the and yet, I like the part where I shoot him too. Uh, yeah, you have have one of the most iconic scenes occurring on the walls above during this time. You have Sturm on the walls, trying to buy time, and mm-hmm. this is the one. I mean, you've got paintings of it. People love this scene. Um, yeah, personally, I think this is one of the dumbest things Sturm does, but. <laughs> Uh, you know, he's not buying, he's not, one man isn't going to buy time, but what his action does, does buy the knighthood a new life. Mm-hmm. And he gets oh. what he wanted. That was his wish. Right. So, every, this the first, when I was younger, I, I wasn't really, you know, at 15, um, I was all about the of the mage, Raceland, and magic, because that's the the characters I like to play in D anD. d So, like the the part of Sturm dying, when I first read it, it it didn't affect me. Like I I could care less. 
Um, but now going through and reading it again over the years, it is as I get a little more older and um, arguably more mature, uh, you know, it affects you in different ways. Um, and you, when you see it through a, a different uh, lens, um, and it's it's definitely a a more powerful moment uh, to me now than it was when I was, uh, you know, 16 years old reading it for the first time or whatever. All, all I could really think was, ooh, the dwarf made it. <laughs> the I good. love this scene. I love the um, the the art uh, that Larry Elmore did of the Rana standing over Sturm's body is probably my favorite Dragonlance art. Yeah, I used to have that framed on a wall. <laughs> I think that just like perfectly captures that scene and that feeling. Yep. So we we have the novel ending with Sturm being buried, um, utilized by a bitter, angry Lorana. Um, and you have the survivors of the knights banding together there. You've got Alana Starbreeze burying her father in Sylvanesti and heading back to her people. Um, I guess, what's you guys' biggest takeaway? What's you guys' favorite parts of this novel? We we discussed quite a bit of it. So I, th- I think as a, as a flip side to where I said I would not like to run a game set in the Nightmare of Destiny, I would totally love to run a game based on the High Clare's Tower battle. Um, it was... You saw what the dragon orbs were for. You saw how they were used. Um, you see how dragon lances are used, and it just brought a lot of the aspects of of the you know the plot together. Um, you know, you could see how easily the uh, the lances could kill these dragons, and for the first time in a long time, uh, you know, you see the good guys have have some hope. Uh, now that they've got a, a weapon that they can use, um, like I said, it's. I think it'd be a uh, a really cool part to run uh, for like a one shot game. Maybe just have a session where you just do a uh, battle of the High Clarice Tower and and kill a bunch of dragons and try to survive. Um, but um, I don't know. There's a lot that I liked in this book. Uh, quite a lot. Like I said, the the nightmare, the the Dragon Mountain. Um and the Battle of the High Clarice Tower. A lot of I don't know. There wasn't anything I didn't really I, I that I disliked, uh, but there was some parts that were slower and uh than others, but all in all, um I, I thought it was a, a pretty good paced book. The f- I, I liked the fact that they split the group up so you can uh as Megan said, you could see more of the world. Um, because they kept going to different places, um, I, I think that helped as well. Because you got to see a, a better, a better uh, scope of of Ancelon in different locations. Because um, Dragonlance books always have really cool um, and unique locations. So that that's one of my favorite parts of the books is seeing where they go next um, and the features of these locations. So I. You had the tower, you had the uh, the High Clarice Tower, you had the, you know, Dragon Mountain, you had the Sylvanesti Forest, um, Nightmarescape. I thought were all really cool locations that uh, that the that Margaret and Tracy were able to 
bring to life in very, very meaningful um, and, and sometimes emotional ways. I have uh, two, two specific scenes I wanted to point out that we haven't talked about yet. And they're just small scenes, but they're two of my favorites. One is when the group is leaving Icewall and they're on their way to Urgoth and uh, Flint is down in the bottom, or he's in his cabin in the ship thinking that he's going to die from seasickness. And he's trying to like give Tasselhoff some last words of wisdom and <laughs> Tasselhoff doesn't understand what Flint is making such a big fuss about and Flint just keeps getting angrier and angrier at him. I thought that was a scene. That was a great Flint and uh, Tass scene. Yeah. And the other scene, so I would have read this book for the first time when I was about 11, and 11, 12, 11 or 12. And one scene that really stuck out for me is the scene with Gilthanis and Silvara when they're out in the woods together and he's like creeping on her while she's bathing under the waterfall or whatever. When you're when you're young reading that scene, I mean it's it's pretty PG by modern standards, but at the time that was pretty steamy stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, especially the illustration, you know, the the black and white art. Oh yeah, it's got the yeah. art of um like Silvara in the moonlight. Yeah. I like Silvara a lot as a character. I think she it's sad that she never really got to do much more than she does in that book, but it would be nice. I, I like her as a character. My my one scene that um, we didn't discuss, uh, we, we discussed it, but we didn't really discuss it, was the last time they're all together, the companions. That's probably one of the most bittersweet scenes as, you, as you're reading it, and you, you're like, this is the last time mm-hmm. you folks are, are, are going to be ever together for the rest of the series. Yeah, and, that's true. And you're in Tarsus. And doesn't uh, doesn't is it Raceland says something like we are destined to not meet each other sometime again in this life or something like that? Yeah, he just yeah. knows that for some reason, <laughs> but he's right. Yeah, yeah, that's really sad. I never really thought of it like that. Now you're bumming me out. Right. Was, every time I read that, and this, I get to that part in the book, and I'm just like, this is, I just got to put it down and walk away for a while because yeah, the A team is never going to see Sturm or Flint again after that. Oh no, they'll see Flint, but they'll never see Sturm again. Horst Sturm, uh, spoiler alert, does bite the big one here, folks. Yeah. They even <laughs> foreshadow it in Autumn Twilight. Do you guys ever pick up on that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah we talked the Forest about Master? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. That's. Horst Sturm was written as a character to die. He was just. He was doomed from the start. He never had a chance. Well, that's what happens when you idolize somebody who's the crux of their whole existence is sacrificing their life. You just end up doing the same thing. So. Right. Well, Sturm's namesake never got foreshadowed to die, and he just died off screen. <laughs> oh yeah, poor guy. Poor. Sorry, he wasn't that. In- he wasn't that interesting anyway. Could have been. But I hope we get to talk about that book someday. They, they didn't well, get that. That, that book is 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 the book that I my blood pressure goes to the roof. So yes, it's on the list. <laughs> okay, good. Oh, I could talk forever about that book. We'll have to make it a two-parter or a three-parter. It's probably going to be a long one because there's so much stuff <laughs> to talk about. Dragons of a Summer Flame. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that is for a different day because we are super long on the tooth on this episode, folks. <laughs> um, 
I would like to thank you all for, on behalf of the Dragonlance Nexus for listening, um, or the Dragonlance Canticle for listening. Which, which, which thing am I doing right now? Oh, um, both. Either way. Guy in charge, do whatever you want. I'm not the guy in charge. That's, that's Trampus, who's still in Nordmar doing gosh knows what. Jason Dinosaurs. Who knows what he's doing there? He'll probably come back with a shirt that says Team Derek Crown Guard. <laughs> oh, please, no. <laughs> he would never. I don't know. With that note, I'm Chuck. I want to thank Megan. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, you're welcome back anytime you want to hop on. Thank uh, you for having me. Thanks for having time. me. This was super fun. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love. I love stuff. geeking out. I love geeking out about Dragonlance. We all do on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Maybe not John. Whatever. Oh, hey, John's on. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, folks. And, and I am Chuck, and I am signing us off. Have a good night. Bye, everybody. Bye.